Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm so excited to have you on Mentally Yours. This is really brilliant. Um, I'm a massive, massive Loose Woman fan, so I'm really trying not to to stand out here <laughs> you can stand out a bit <laughs> so how have you been doing during lockdown and the pandemic in general I've been okay you know because my my depression is depressive illness so it tends to be endogenous in as much as it doesn't it's not reactive so I know that there are many people during the lockdown have discovered being out of control of their mental health I, in fact, touch wood have been have been okay. I mean, I've been overwhelmed and I have been sad and I've spent days in tears, as we all have, but not not as, as part of a, a depression, a clinical depression. There's two schools of people. There's people who really want the world to start ticking over again normally. And those people who found such a solace in lockdown that they're getting frightened that things are moving, moving forward. There's two schools and I'm kind of a, a bit of a halfway house. But generally... I am. I've tried very much to err on the side of positivity. I've tried to be the perspective police at Loose Women is what they call me, and try to look for the good news about this uh, virus when we can have the odd little tremor. Because there's too many Corona Karens they're calling them out there who just want to dwell on all of the bad signs and all of the statistics and don't seem to want us to move forward. So I try to just um, have a little bit of perspective on it. So generally, I've been. Some very long-winded, waffly way of saying I'm okay. Waffle is very much welcome, so do not <laughs> worry. <laughs> How are you feeling with kind of the end of lockdown? I know you said you're kind of in between the nerves and the feeling okay about it. It's kind of difficult to remain positive because if you if you have to read the mainstream media, which all of us being in the media, we do. And because of Loose Women particularly, we have had a very... I've never been nervous doing Loose Women in 18 years. But I have in the last few weeks because we have coronavirus and we have the Black Lives Matter, two huge arenas. 
And, you know, so BLM has been difficult um, after uh, George Floyd's death as, 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 as a middle class white woman sitting on a panel, not knowing how terrified to know what to say, trying to take guidance from our black colleagues, you know. And so that's been that's been hard to navigate. And also, I will not go to the table at Loose Women um, to talk about the virus without being backed by science. So but that's also difficult because you have the Oxford model and the imperial model as two, for example, who are completely different. I kind of naively thought science was sort of sort of one thing, that if there was a virus, all the scientists would would agree on what it was and where it was going to go. Um, so, as I say, they call me the perspective police. And I, and I try desperately to remain positive. And my view is things like the second wave, if there is going to be a second wave, Let's prepare for it and let's deal with it. But let's not ruin some of the joys about coming out of lockdown by, by we don't know that there's going to be one. You know, and also today, hearing, and, and I will share that, you know, there's such positive news about the, about the vaccine coming out. But often you have to look for this news. You have to look for the stats that at the moment there may be slight outbreaks going on. In infection, but the mortality rate is the lowest that we've had in July for years. So again, it's balancing it all and just trying to remain optimistic. Can we talk a bit about your um, brilliant new book, The Unwelcome Visitor? Now, yeah. um, how has your depression been um, during all the kind of buzz of promoting it and also sort of the writing of it? How has it? How have you managed that? Has it been all right, or how? Yeah, it, it ha- no, it has been. It has been. It has been all right. So the book was spawned. Uh, shall we say, by um, me documenting uh, an episode of depression in real time last September. And like I said before, my depression in the main, not always, but in the main is endogenous. It's organic. So it is it is depressive illness. And um, so as a result of that, I never know when it's coming. So um, an example to people who don't know about about it as opposed to when we feel depressed when something circumstantially has made you upset or or grief stricken or you know which is horrible and depression is not persistent sadness which I often read whenever you look for a description of depression it will say persistent sadness and I want to say that sadness is something that we that, that we feel when something makes us sad like happiness you know it's not a striving for happiness happiness is something we should feel when something makes us happy but depression depresses every single emotion. So you can't feel happiness, sadness, love, joy, greed, anger, guilt, nothing, 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 nothing. So I went to my sister's feeling terrible. The next morning I woke up and the visitor, my unwelcome visitor was definitely there. And impulsively, having talked about this for 30 years, I picked up my phone and I recorded a three-day episode of depression in real time. And it wasn't until I was well again about four days later um, that that I realized the impact it had had. I hadn't realized because I hadn't been well enough. My phone goes away. I, I'm like this if my phone rings. And it had been on news at 10, a million and a half people had viewed it. And the comments, ladies, were just heartbreaking. You know, people who completely felt that they had been heard for the first time and that I was describing what they feel like people who had showed them to their family who suddenly seemed to have an understanding of what they'd gone through, people who had never been empathetic to people with depression because they thought it was, oh, what has she got to be depressed about not understanding the illness? 
had come forward. And that is how the book started. And I I didn't grasp at the book. I worried about it because I knew writing it would take me to some dark places. But when I was writing it very early on, I got the feeling strongly that I was writing the book that I had always needed. And the success of it has sort of validated my my reasons for, for doing it. Yeah, you cover so much in the book. One of the things that you sort of start off with, though, is you write about how a female doctor told you, I have five children and um, I just didn't have time to get depressed. How much do you think that attitudes to postnatal depression have changed both within the medical profession um, and in society as a whole now? Mm. Well, like you say, that mine started as postnatal depression prior to having Matty. 31 years ago, I'd never had any incidents of mental illness, psychiatric illness, nothing. Um, in the very beginning, people wanted to say that I did. You must have done. This must have started in childhood. Did your dad did your dad spend too long in the bathroom with you? Did your grand, you know, and it was like, hang on a minute, hang, hang on a minute. I was in almost a catatonic state of, of, of depression at this time. And I saw some, um, that's exactly what the GP said. My mom, had it not been had it not been for my family understanding early on that what I had was a serious illness, I don't know where I would have been or indeed if I would have been here. And that sounds very dramatic, but there was nothing, there was no one to help. There was nobody like me speaking out, nobody on the television, nobody that I could relate to was speaking out about it. Um, and so print media was kind of the only where to go and there was just nothing. And that GP is exactly what she said. She, and, and I was in a literally in a catatonic state like this. I could hardly talk because there's a massive physical manifestation when the depression is very deep as well. And um, she exactly what she said. She leant forward and said, if, well, you know, I had five children, dear, and I just didn't get time. I have time to get depressed. And and that was a general view. When the um, when I after five days of having Matty at home, I had this massive panic attack, which I'd never had before. And I wasn't an anxious mom. I wasn't anxious about the baby. I just felt a sense of detachment from reality. Anyway, long story short, I went to bed, slept very badly, maybe for two hours. And when I woke up, the whole lactation process had stopped. So I went to bed with full boobs, to put a finer point on it, you know, the boobs that you have when you have a baby. And when I came to, I had nothing. I had spaniel's ears, literally nothing. Now, nowadays, that would be a massive red flag to a doctor or a nurse as a huge hormonal shift that shouldn't have happened. Then this community midwife came around. I had him privately and they didn't have midwives that came around. So this midwife came around to me and she said exactly like this as well. She went, mm, that's not good. The reason why people have on, on this book and my way of talking about it shows that there is still a long way to go. There is still people thinking that there is a stigma and that they should feel guilty about this. But like I say, and it's a quite a, quite a, um, this is the analogy that I make. Not only do those of us with depressive illness have a crippling, debilitating, isolating, often terminal illness, we still have to prove that we have it. And you wouldn't go up to someone in a bed who was, who you'd been told was very, very ill with cancer, say, you wouldn't go up and say, well, you look fine to me. You know, you've been there a month now. And I think, honestly, you should make the effort. You should get yourself out of bed, put your trainers on and go for a bloody good walk. Nobody would say that to you. 
And yet when we are in that state, when we can't even get out of bed, I can't eat, my appetite goes, um, it's, 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 it's a swirling, it's a swirling blackness, this chaos that goes on in your brain. And it's, um, it's terrifying. And, you know, I've been on the verge of, um, I, I've had one psychotic episode before. Luckily, mine isn't really psychosis. But this is a serious illness that we still need to learn a lot, a lot more about. And so do the medical profession. They will, they have honestly over the years said to me, we'll take a lead from you. What do you think you need? Do you think you need to change your medication? You know, and I've got people now in the mental health profession have asked me if they, well, they don't need permission, but can they use my book to to work with 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 patients on, which is which is amazing news for me. Have you had a good experience after that incident with the GP getting help and getting professional help for mental illness? Yes, but it's been hard to find. Mm-hmm. There is there there is. There are people who think that you can get well without medication. It depends. Talking therapy is something that I have now, but I almost don't have it for my depressive illness. I have it for just me. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all need sometimes to have a bit of therapy or a bit of clarification or problems that happen in the family with some relationships. You maybe need to speak to somebody outside. But when those people are in a depression, Talking is something that you very rarely can do. So talking therapy, exercise, all of these things that you hear are good, are very good in the in-between periods when you are lucid. And when I, my book subtitle is, um, well, it's The Unwelcome Visitor, Depression and How I Survive It. Obviously, it's not depression and how to survive it because I'm not a medic. So I can never, would never, ever think that I had any right to tell anybody how to survive it, which is trying to do the best that you can in between the episodes and realizing that that those episodes can be can be that those times in between can be amazing and to remember and this is what a lot of people don't get told that unwelcome visitor will always leave you know and for those people who are new to the illness because although depressive clinical depression started as postnatal depression with me it starts with for many reasons for, for lots of people it can start with with losing a job it can start with 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 losing a parent but there's a difference between how you feel when you lose a job or like when when I lost my mum eight years ago I was bereft I was grief stricken I was traumatized but I didn't get an episode of my depression so it's too it, it, it it's trying to find a parity about the concern we have for physical illness being on a, let's have it on a path for mental illness as well and Good medics will say, I will listen to you and help you. I took 20 years to try and find anybody that would admit that there could have been a hormonal origin to my depression. And it's like, are you serious? I had a baby. I formed another human being in my body and and gave birth. And most women will have the baby blues where your hormones are balancing. With some, it causes a chemical chaos. And... The, the most I'm, I'm sort of going like this I'm hoping that you can, <laughs> yeah, it's all, all this but when I was first poorly the most the most non-understanding that's a made-up word but I can't think of another word the people who were less sympathetic were people of my granny's generation and they were the ones who were a bit like my doctor who was like who were like um well 
we we just had to pull up our bootstraps and get on with it. You know, we didn't have such names like postnatal depression. Well, of course, then if you said to your grandma, what happened to um, Auntie Vera? They'd go, um, well, she went a bit funny after the birth. And of course, you'd find that there were so many people institutionalized with depression because of it not being treated, especially after childbirth and menopause. Because, of course, after menopause, when, when depressive symptoms started really affecting me again very, very, very badly, a lot of women, before HRT and everything, we were just on the scrap heap. We were done breeding and we were just, that was it, you know. So, um, so yes, we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Can we talk a bit about the um, title of your book, The Unwelcome Visitor? Because I think it's really interesting what you said about it comes and it goes, because people do assume that depression is a constant sadness all the time what why do you describe it as a visitor well a as I say it's not sadness sadness is like sadness is what I felt in the in the global pandemic sadness for our futures sadness for our you know me I'm the mother of two sons who are both in the entertainment industry and we need all they need audiences and and so do I in my profession and my friends are losing jobs right out you know losing careers it's awful that is sadness sadness when my mom died um, I call it the unwelcome visitor because I used to, well it was the book was going to be the unwelcome visitor or the uninvited guest and um, I've always since early days felt that my depression or the way that I've dealt with it is like it's a thing and I used to call it the thing and in fact I still do sometimes if if I'm poorly and and, and say my dad rings or something and he'll say have you got your thing and I go I go I've got my thing I've always described it as that when I've been going on stage and I have felt my thing approaching me but I've stood backstage going um don't you dare come near me don't you dare I've got to go on that stage and do this fucking show and it's like trying to fight it off with anger or, or almost um because what happens is when you're when your system is open to this illness sometimes the fear of the fear can start generating all, all the the adrenaline and the cortisone and all the things that happen to make this this you know brain thing happen um so i've always seen it as an unwelcome visitor so i feel metaphorically i suppose that my unwelcome visitor right now is miles away at the other side of town he's not affecting me i know he's there because i know where he lives but he's he's not affecting me but i can feel him coming sometimes and sometimes He'll turn and walk away. But once that unwelcome visitor is in my door and the door is shut, I just have to wait until he leaves. But because I've had this for 30 years, I have the comfort of knowing that he will leave. I apologize for men to men for making him a he. I've been asked about that recently. I don't know why it is. I think it stems from the bogeyman historically or the grim reaper or any of these horrible bogeyman type things. So I do apologize to, to men, but that's just how I see it. Well, someone else calls it the black dog, which I always yeah. found kind of sad for dogs. Because they're lovely. <laughs> well, yeah, it was Winston Churchill called it the black dog. And some people do call it the black dog. Um, and, and again, it was that that's the fact that, you know, it sort of materializes as, um, as, 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 as something else. I mean, you know, Winston Churchill had it had it terribly and he had to run the country. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I mean, even though. I never voted for this government and they have made some disastrous mistakes. 
I still have found myself sometimes worrying about their mental health. And I know that seems ridiculous because I can't stand some of them. But I tell you what, that's a lot of pressure on anybody to do to, to go through what they've been through. And I'd hate to be seen to be supporting a government that I really don't don't like. But as human beings, I still think that I have been concerned for the mental health of some of these some some of these people because that type of overwhelming responsibility can be a massive thing that brings this illness on. That actually brings me on um, to my next question, really. Um, so I was going to ask about, I mean, obviously, by anyone's standards, you're incredibly successful, Coronation Street, Lose Women and everything. Um, what are the unique challenges of living with depression um, when you're in the public eye so much? Because obviously, I mean, in some ways, you, you have to deal with sort of things that, I mean, Ellen and I don't. We've, we've both had depression ourselves and but we're we're not in the public eye like you are. Obviously, being in the public eye has given me a great soapbox to talk about it, which I have used for 30 years, because believe you me, girls, I I was I was a lone wolf and I was people tried to shut me down so many times for my own what they thought was for my own good. Don't talk about it. People will think you're mad. You'll never work. You'll never work. You're just at the start of a great career. You'll never, ever work. And I just thought that because I had had nobody to look at, you know, I'm sure the three of us, I would have given anything to have seen or heard something like this of somebody saying, I know exactly how you're feeling, but you will get better. You may you you will always have those episodes, but your life can be great in between. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, Yvette, like you say, I think that I. Well. A couple of years ago, I was asked for a magazine to write an article um, called A Letter to My 16-Year-Old Self. And it was quite interesting writing it. And one of the things was, what would you tell yourself? And it was that you will go through this. You you know, I won't be able to stop you having this illness that is going to come your way. But I would be kinder to myself. I used to think that the world would stop if I didn't go to work. And I realized that that's not the case. We all have an element of the show must go on, and especially those of us in the theater, because the show historically has had to go on. You know, it's very rare. People think you always have an understudy. You only have an understudy in the West End or a big, massive tour. When you're at Bolton Octagon or you're at the Royal Exchange at Manchester or Live Theatre Company in Newcastle, you have no understudy. So if you can't go on, the theatre loses thousands of pounds. So there has always been that. And I have never not gone on. The only time I have ever was a pant at Stockport, which is quite near me. And I had a massive breakdown, as they used to call it, um, when I was doing this pantomime. and. It resulted in me not eating for three weeks, pretending to my family that I'd eaten, wanting to crash the car on the way going to work. Now, I, I didn't want to crash the car because I wanted to end my life. I wanted to crash the car so that people would say, you can't go to the theater and go on stage. I wanted to be taken to hospital where people would look after me and I didn't have to go on stage because I, I would talk to people about being open, but I wasn't doing it myself. And after two weeks, and also I was surrounded by little children because obviously we had, you know, you have all the babes in the panto. And I didn't want them to see the wicked queen in, 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 in a state. And I can remember sitting on stage at this theater and somehow the words were coming out of my mouth, but I felt like I was in this horror film. 
and and the blackness it was it was so terrifying anyway at the end of the second week I went into my dressing room and my dresser Davinia was there and she said that I just literally fell to the floor and I fainted and she called my husband Tim who I was then married to and he came and said I'm taking you out of the theater and I was going I can't leave I can't leave and he said and, and he said to the stage manager you're going to have to deal with this I'm taking her home and he took me home and the and the and the newspapers this is stayed in my mind but it's relevant to what we're talking about most of the papers that picked up on this story were, were just said I was poorly this local paper in Stockport did, a, did wrote something that has been emblazoned on my mind and it said um Denise Welsh today walked out of um the pantomime disappointing thousands of young fans who had paid to see her citing nervous exhaustion which they put in inverted commas and it said but and I don't remember the girl's name and I wouldn't quote her anyway but Susan Snodgrass who was playing Snow White battled on despite a broken wrist and made sure that she made up for the disappointment that Denise Welsh left in her wake and I just remember that was the perfect example of the way that physical condition and mental condition is viewed nobody had rung me to see how i was nobody had rung me to get my point of view or what had actually happened and um and that view was well what has she got to be depressed about Do you know what i mean so there have been times when it's been difficult what happened when i was doing coronation street which is 24 years ago now um was that i was dealing with a very bad time illness wise so Matthew was about nine, and um I had always I'd always liked to drink but just in the way that people like a drink to go out and party you know but I I was really struggling and I started to self-medicate with alcohol and then subsequently with drugs and and trying to keep a family together and hide what was happening to me and there's no excuses for my behavior and I never take any I, I never ever try to make excuses my drinking and everything impacted on my family and hurt the people who loved me but there were reasons you know those things started as a result of me trying to stop the pain and you girls have both know what i'm talking about you will sometimes do anything to stop the pain in your head and sadly it put me on a on a treadmill and which i couldn't get off for many many years until well until 8 years ago and when i met my well i met my husband 10 years ago but 8 years ago we got sober and it's been it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me really how did you realize that the self medicating had become a problem because it's so easy for it to just kind of go as like oh it's just a normal because, thing i'm just drinking because, no because it was um because i think that when you when you realize that it's making you more it's it was making my depression worse the next day but then i was so terrified of the come down that i was that i was doing more and i would go i would i would go straight to work sometimes and then the come down was happen it was just awful but i also wasn't the kind of alcoholic because i did bring up two children i i wasn't the kind of alcoholic that woke up in the morning and went to the back of the shoe cupboard and found a bottle of gin and was doing this all day like that i wasn't that person you know i was i won awards at my time at coronation street i am an award winning actress and i don't say that with any arrogance i say it because that's how much i could function and that's how much i could pull the wool over people's eyes and obviously i wasn't depressed all of the time but by which time that was the way that i fueled it and it was ridiculous but i didn't have the strength 
to to stop drinking. And um, and then, of course, when you throw cocaine into the mix, that's the worst drug that anybody could ever take in life. But of course, it had started because someone had said to me, if you've got depression, this will make you feel better. And it did initially. And it did. But of course, soon I was hooked on that. And and then that would you would be able to drink more and you would be able to stay up later because then you had to go to work and you didn't want the depression to kick in and blah, 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 blah. And I, I almost see that person as another person, as someone that I feel desperately sorry for. Um, and I do. And, and when I was doing the audio version of my book, I was crying. <laughs> and we were just coming out of lockdown and this poor guy, Alfie, who was at the studio and obviously we were separated. I was in one booth and he was in another as we would have been anyway. And I was crying at sections that were to do with my mum, or sections where I felt that I'd been so lost. And this young Alfie was saying, I wish I could just come in and give you a big hug. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this poor guy thinks he's got this complete nutter here. And I use that in inverted commas, you know, and I said, well, you have got this nutter here. And it was a very sad time and, and a very sad time for my family, you know, a very underrepresented group of people who I try to really um, talk about in the book is the people who live with and love people with depression. They're very underrepresented. My husband, Tim, who's my kid's dad, who I'm still friends with, our marriage ended after 24 years, but he was always brilliant when I was depressed. And even when our marriage was breaking down, you know, for, for many, many reasons, it was still him that I turned to when I had depression. I was filming in New York once with the girls from Loose Women. You know, in what should have been a brilliant time, we were filming in New York. We were we were pretending we were Sex in the City girls. And I'm across the road in a corner of Toys R Us, crouched on the floor calling Tim in the middle of a depression. And um, anyway, fast forward, I meet Lincoln. And... Uh, and and we kind of turned each other's lives around. And he he said to me himself, he said, before I knew you, I was very selfish. I had no idea about people's depression. And I would have probably looked at you and said, she got to be depressed about, shut up, you know? And so I understand people's ignorance about it as long as they are happy to be open enough to, to learning. Yeah, that's a really lovely section in the book, actually, because you, you get everyone involved, really. It's really yeah. nice to see that you get your... Um, you get your husband, you get your sons, you get friends. It's so lovely to see that perspective from people. Um, how did, I mean, what sort of reaction do you get, especially from your sons, when you, you talk so openly about depression um, and addiction? Mostly good. Sometimes, you know, they're both kids trying to forge their own career. Well, my they're both being very successful. My son's a hugely successful rock star. So sometimes if you see something in the Sun newspaper, it's like, oh, my God, what has she been saying now? Why am I in the Sun newspaper? You know, because he's, he's in the cool press. <laughs> um, but my kids are very proud of me. And, you know, it's been a struggle. I tend not to talk too much about Matty because he's got his own career going on. But, you know, we, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about how he was affected by my drinking. He, he, it was more so Matty because Louis was about nine when we got sober. And um, so it's almost been like I've had two single children, two, you know, because there's 12 years between them, although they're incredibly close. Um, and um, it's hard. 
You know, it's hard for kids because if you because you can't remember a, a, a lot of it, even though I was functioning. Um, and there was also brilliant times. I don't want people to think I was this person slurring their way around both of my kids' childhood. That's not the case. And Matty has also said, Mom, if our lives weren't a bit rock and roll, I wouldn't be in the 1975. <laughs> because there's no way that Lincoln and I, sober Lincoln and I, would have had a band forming at our house over 10 years staying up till five and six in the morning and just I would get up in the morning to go to work and I'd be stepping over various bands you know and now Lincoln and I want to be in bed at 10 with a comfort and a cup of tea so that now the 1975 would not have existed <laughs> so um so you're welcome to all the 1975 fans it's all because <laughs> of me <laughs> but um they're both very proud they're very proud of this book and you know it's made them very sensitive to um to, to mental health. Matthew uses his voice for the greater good whenever he can for any oppressed communities of any kind. He's huge within the LGBTQ community, which I think is because of me. And obviously those people, you know, uh, uh, su suffer depression and anxiety on a huge scale. So Matt is a great voice for that. And obviously Louis has a great understanding of mental illness. And, um, and, and, and at 19, can't understand why there would any be less sympathy for those mentally ill than those than those physically ill so um and and they're great when I'm poorly you know they know what to say what not to say and just to just they know how to deal with it so this is goodbye from mentally yours so go away enjoy your day get on with all your chores from mentally mentally Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm hmm. 